With record acquisitions predicted for the year ahead, it's worth spending a few minutes exploring how they can go well for a company and what it looks like when they don't. Motley Fool Money starts now. I'm Chris Hill, joined by Motley Fool Senior Analyst Jason Moser. Thanks for being here. Hey, man. Thanks for having me. Coming up later in the show, Deidre Woolard is going to be talking with Makaran Modi, Professor of Hospitality Marketing at Boston University. They're going to be talking about Airbnb. Uh, but let's you and me start by talking about acquisitions. Uh, Teladoc came out with their latest earnings report. You pointed out something on Twitter that was somewhat eye-opening to me because we've talked in the past about their acquisition of Livongo and how much they paid for Livongo. Yeah. And you pointed out that years ago they bought BetterHelp for four and a half million dollars, and if you look at what BetterHelp did for their business kind of looks like the opposite of the Livongo purchase. It looks like a purchase <laughs> that really worked out well for them. Well, it, yeah, and I mean, I, I guess we should say with Livongo, the jury is still out, right? Let's give them a little time, um, and we can dig into that a little bit later. But yeah, to your point regarding BetterHelp, I mean, that has turned out to just be a phenomenal investment. And, and to put some numbers around that, uh, Teladoc bought. Uh, BetterHelp in 2015, they paid four and a half million dollars. And BetterHelp this past year, 2021, just generated better than 700 million dollars in revenue for the business. So clearly, they saw early on, and this was honestly one of the things that attracted me to to Teladoc in the very beginning. This this idea of of a, a new way to to Distribute mental health uh, uh, services, right? I mean, that's what BetterHelp is, and I think they saw early on this this idea with with telemedicine, with virtual healthcare. It was a nice way for folks to pursue um, assistance regarding mental health. It kind of it kind of saved people, I think, from having to make that decision, maybe of going to the doctor for fear of being seen walking into a psychiatrist's office, for example. I mean, of course, there's, there's no shame in doing that. Um, but, but the stigma exists. And I think they felt like this was a great opportunity, because you can visit your psychiatrist essentially from anywhere, right? You don't have to leave your home. Uh, it gives people a little bit more, it makes them maybe a little bit more open-minded to, to pursuing that. Um, and that's really paid off for them, clearly. Uh, I mean, I don't think anyone really foresaw what what we would have been going through over these past couple of years, but it, it, clearly these past couple of years have taken a toll on everyone. I would say uh, some some more than others, and, and what that really has uh, done, it's it's given Teladoc Health a great opportunity to to get that BetterHelp product uh, service out there for for folks who who need it, and, and clearly a lot of people are taking them up on that. Um, and so, yeah, it, it, when you when you look at acquisitions, and Teladoc has really grown via acquisition through the years, that is one that stands out as a as a wonderful investment. I realize that I tend to think of management teams and businesses making acquisitions. In a pretty binary way, yeah. I tend to just put companies and management teams into one of two buckets. Either they're good with acquisitions or they're not. And I'm wondering if I should start thinking about it more like a portfolio, where you've got a portfolio of stocks and you've got some winners, you've got some losers. Uh, the BetterHelp acquisition uh, turned out to be a masterstroke by the folks at Teladoc. As you said, Lavongo is still out. We've talked before about meta platforms. 
buying Instagram for $1 billion. And that was a genius move. And there are activist investors who look at Meta platforms paying, I think it was $19 billion for WhatsApp and saying, what are you, what are you doing? <laughs> yeah. is, this, is this the same group of people? I mean, is that, is that how we should think about acquisitions? Because obviously, we'd love it if companies we owned were out there making acquisitions. We'd love it if, like, oh, they're, they're great at this. But is the better way to think about it more like stock picking in that, look, some of these acquisitions, they're just not going to work out. They're going to overpay, uh, or it's going to take longer to be accretive. I, I like that. I like that point of view. That's generally the way I look at it, right? I mean, with companies that grow via acquisitions. I mean, some companies don't really don't really rely too much on that, but some companies do. And and I don't think it's totally reasonable to expect them to bat a thousand, right? Much like we as investors don't expect to bat a thousand in our own portfolios. Some acquisitions. You know, they just they just don't work out, uh, or or you know maybe it, it takes a little bit longer for them to play out. So it, the Livongo deal to me has been fascinating because I, I will say, I mean, I am obviously a bull on Teladoc Health, own the shares personally, and and I still cringe <laughs> when I think about how much they paid for Livongo. Now there are a couple of a couple of things that make it a little bit easier for me to to deal with and and so i think about from the perspective of number 1 yeah they paid a ton of money for it but it was a a cash and stock deal so thankfully they uh, were able to take advantage of a very inflated stock price when they made that deal, right? So they did use some cheap currency there, uh, which which was a good thing. Uh, the other thing in regard to Lavongo, and I know everybody likes to think, well, acquisition, therefore we want to see results now. I think with Lavongo, it probably is going to take more time. I think one of the reasons why they were so attracted to paying up for that business in such an early stage was the nature of their of their of what they provide. Right, the focus on chronic care. And we've talked about this before, but but you look at. Over 40% of the adults in the U.S. are living with multiple chronic conditions. So you do a little back of the envelope math there. 40% of the of adults. So you got 330 million people in the country. 25% of them, round number, are kids. So you got something like 250 million adults, give or take, right? 250 million adults. 40% of that is 100 million people. That's a lot of people, <laughs> and they they just chalked up 729,000 uh, individuals enrolled in their chronic uh, care program. So you can see 729,000 versus 100 million. That's a big that's a big gap there. Now I'm not saying that 100 million is is the market opportunity, uh, but I am saying that there are plenty of folks out there still uh, who who could end up being enrolled in in this in this program of in in this suite of services that they offer. And, and the other thing is that with chronic conditions, I've said it before, they require chronic care. So I think in regard to this deal, you have to really think longer term, right? Because they have the opportunity to develop really lifelong relationships with a lot of patients. Uh, you're talking 10, 20, 30, 40 year relationships potentially with these folks uh, who, who have these, these multiple chronic conditions. And so there is, there is the potential for a very long 
uh, long living stream of revenue from these from these chronic uh, from these chronic conditions patients that that maybe investors today don't really want to think that far out. But I think it it helps make a little bit more sense of the deal and why it could be a good thing for Teladoc. I think the jury's still out as to whether it is going to be ultimately a good deal. Um, But I think we're seeing signs. At least I understand why I understand why they were attracted to it, and it certainly is a key point of focus for them going forward. uh, Chronic care. I mean, that the call. Jeez, it may as well have been sponsored by Dr. Dre. Man, the word chronic was mentioned 45 times in the call. So, I mean, these guys are focused on chronic care, and that makes a lot of sense. Last thing before we move on, we were talking before we started recording about the prospect for more and more acquisitions this year. You look at shares of Teladoc Health down dramatically over the past 12 months. The market cap is around $10 billion. You think someone's going to kick the tires and maybe look to buy them in the next year or two? Or do you feel like they have enough going on where they can start turning the stock price around and therefore an acquisition of Teladoc Health becomes more expensive? I mean, I, I, I absolutely believe there are parties out there that would be interested in owning this company. Um, it, it's, it's interesting to see where the stock price is today. You got to go back to like mid 2019. Um, you know, we've essentially round tripped from there. But it's also worth noting when you go back to 2019, Teladoc was basically a $5 billion company, right? Well, it's a $10 billion company today, but the share price is the same. So what gives? Well, we were just talking about it, right? Acquisition. They issued a ton of shares to facilitate that Lavongo deal. So as a shareholder, you kind of feel like maybe they've been they've been uh, spinning their wheels a little bit. But it it is a it is a much larger company today. Uh, the point being that acquisitions do come at a cost, and you will you will feel that in the near term. Um, I have a hard time believing that Teladoc's management would be interested in being acquired. To me, this is a team that really uh, seems dedicated to to building this business out and um, in, in doing all that they can uh, without having to deal with living under someone else's roof, so to speak. So, I certainly believe that there are folks out there who would be interested, but I think in order to make that happen, they, they would have to pay up. I don't think Teladoc uh, management would just... Uh, would just give it away for a song, so to speak. I know we're not even at the end of February, but is Marvin Ellison an early front runner for CEO of the year? Because when I look at Lowe's wrapping up their fiscal year the way they did, uh, profits and revenue were higher than expected. Same store sales were up five percent, which is not a lot in and of itself. But the quarter we're talking about is not particularly a. A strong, you know, this is heading into the spring, which is typically a more consequential quarter for businesses like Lowe's and Home Depot. I, I feel like Ellison is an early front runner. It, I mean, it certainly feels like it. <laughs> he's he's done a tremendous job, and and if you look at. Uh, Lowe's shares, the the stock has returned 210% over the last five years. I mean, that that's outpacing the market handily. It's it's outpacing Home Depot, uh, which 
to me, that's that's significant, right? I mean, Home Depot had, for for the longest time, really been really been the leader of the pack there. And and but but Mr. Ellison has just done a tremendous job in turning Lowe's around and really getting the most out of this business. And 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 he's also benefiting, I think, from a very wonderful time to be a company named Lowe's or Home Depot, right? I mean, the, the housing market is tight. Uh, and as a reminder, we talk about this often when we talk about these companies. But 50% of the homes in the U.S. are, are 40 years old and older. And, and that means that they require investments and upkeep. And when you look at Lowe's sales, two-thirds of their annual sales are generated from repair and maintenance activities. So, it, it, it's a market where they, uh, they, they hold a, an important position. They, they know a lot about this space, and it helps them manage their inventory levels appropriately. And, and the quarter itself, I mean, another, another strong one, sales $21.3 billion up uh, modestly from a year ago. They grew earnings per share 34%. Pro-customer sales are up 23%. Uh, they continue to reward patient shareholders, right? This is a dividend aristocrat. And they continue to reward patient shareholders not only through the dividend, but the share repurchases as well. The share count's down 22% since 2017. So that's helped fuel uh, that 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 210% uh, return that, that I mentioned earlier. And, and when you put it all together, uh, it, it's just been a tremendous performance uh, from Mr. Ellison and from Lowe's over these past several years. Um, and, and I suspect it, it sounds like they are planning for more of the same here in 2022. Well, and you think about the state of home building in America. Matt Argusinger has made this point before. There's only so quickly home builders can move in aggregate. And when you start doing the math on how many homes per year were being built in the wake of the Great Recession and where we are right now, uh, it, it really does point to, among other things, uh, more home improvement and therefore more businesses, uh, uh, more business for companies like Lowe's and Home Depot. And I know people always put them up against each other uh, in the same way that people put Coke and Pepsi up against one another, and they are competing with one another. But as investors, we can own both. Yeah, that's I'm glad you, that's I'm the, glad you that's said the that. thing I love about this business. We can own both. Yes, yes, we can. And, and honestly, I, I, I think there's, I think it's more than reasonable to own both. I mean, you're looking at a, a, an important market, one that I think is going to, it, it's very resilient. Uh, it, it, they're able to deal with inflationary times uh, pretty well, also. I mean, they, they, they mentioned this in the call. I mean, these, these are costs, right? These inflationary costs that come in. I mean, lumber, for example, is, is, is through the roof now. And they're able to pass these costs along to customers because there's not really a choice, right? But they they're able to also keep prices competitive, and and so we've seen uh, we've seen them handle handle inflationary times well. Gross margin for the quarter uh, expanded 115 basis points from year ago. You're talking about gross margin in in a period of time where inflation's starting to rear its ugly head. That's a big deal, right? And, and we're seeing uh, we're seeing. Companies like Lowe's and Home Depot manage the time very well, just because of the nature of the market that they serve. And uh, and to me, yeah, I, I look at it like Mastercard and Visa. I own both Mastercard and Visa because you don't have to pick one over the other. Uh, you can own both. And I think in this case with Lowe's and Home Depot, it, yeah, Lowe's has outperformed Home Depot over the last five years. But you know what? Home Depot has also outperformed the market over the last five years. They've both been wonderful holdings. Um, Home Depot, I think, was a little bit more. 
of an obvious pick because Lowe's was in a little bit of a turnaround situation and there were questions as to whether Mr. Ellison would really you know, be able to pull this off. Well, he's answered, I think, those questions uh, fully. And, and so going forward, yeah, th these both seem like really, really good opportunities, particularly as we are uh, now entering into a correction territory. Jason Moser, thanks for being here. Thank you. One more driver for the home improvement industry is the growing number of people who are sprucing up their places so they can rent them out on Airbnb. Macaron Modi is a professor of hospitality marketing at Boston University. He's been studying Airbnb's business model and how the company affects hotel prices. For more, here's Deidre Woolard. here today with Dr. Makaran Modi to discuss Airbnb and the hospitality industry. He's an associate professor of hospitality marketing at the Boston University School of Hospitality Administration. And he serves as the chair of undergraduate programs and as the school's first ever director of research. He's done some fascinating research on the impact of Airbnb on the travel industry. Welcome. Thank you, Deidre, for having me. It's a pleasure. So we've been watching the growth in Airbnb now that people are starting to travel again, which is pretty exciting. Why does Airbnb have the advantage in a post-pandemic world? Yeah, I think it really comes down to three factors that we've looked at in our research and just generally otherwise as well. I think the first aspect really is the privacy and the safety that staying at an Airbnb affords, even say relative to a hotel. Uh, in most cases, you have a place completely to yourself. There's no human interaction really for most part. And I think that's giving a lot of people a sense of safety and allowing them to venture out again. I think the second factor that really helps Airbnb is space. So a lot of Airbnbs that you would typically end up getting uh, are significantly larger than your average hotel room. So it really allows smaller groups even to travel much more comfortably. And I think the third aspect is really the changing nature of work and travel as a result of COVID-19. We've just looked at the statistics and there's a large number of people now, uh, more so than in the past, that are working remotely and have significantly more flexible working arrangements. And this allows people to, to work from anywhere, um, really. And I think Airbnb really has capitalized on that and benefited from some of that work from home as well. Yeah, I think that's just a fascinating shift for, for Airbnb, but also for the whole hotel and travel industry. Your research found that Airbnb... The impact of it doesn't necessarily change hotel demand, but it may impact pricing. So what does that mean for the ways that Airbnb and the hotel industry kind of intersect? Yeah. So, um, you know, what's interesting is, and, and we weren't necessarily expecting that in our research as well, because people are now staying with Airbnb as opposed to staying in a hotel room. It would take away some demand from hotel rooms. But I think what the results of our research now show is that over time, and this is really post 2008, post the recession, the size of the travel pie seems to have gotten bigger. So we saw about 12 years of really explosive economic growth, and that was accompanied by an increase in travel, as it tends to happen when people's disposable incomes go up. So the size of the pie actually increased, which mean, meant that there were more people traveling. And even if hotels were getting a slightly smaller piece of that pie, uh, proportionally, it still remained the same. What our research did show is that hotel lost a little bit of that pricing power because Airbnb was now a significant force in the market. So if hotels were able to charge significantly higher rates before 
Airbnb was a big factor. Now that consumers have this alternative accommodation option, hotels realized that they also have to track and really index their prices against what competitive Airbnbs in the geographical area are charging as well. Um, so that's really been an interesting component of this tussle between hotel accommodation and Airbnb, uh, so much so that most of the tracking companies that offer data, like Smith Travel Research, now even offer hotels the ability to track the prices that Airbnbs in their vicinity are charging. So I think that's been a really fascinating development over the last few years. Interesting. I think it's fascinating the way that Airbnb has evolved from starting as an air mattress on a floor in one room to now being this global travel brand. And now it's a publicly traded company, of course. As it grows up, it, it's had its uh, problems with different cities all around the world, and it's sort of maturing as a brand. There's been a lot of talk about Airbnb being uh, a negative for long-term residents. Your research shows that might not be the case. What did you find? Yeah, so um, you know, we really didn't approach our research from that perspective. There has been research in cities like LA that that has shown that Airbnbs do take away from the long-term rental market, and this causes a an increase in rent for whatever the remaining supply is in the market. So um, there has been some research done in cities, but we didn't necessarily approach it from this perspective. Our research was to really look at resident sentiment and to get a sense of how people feel about Airbnb as a brand, and do they perceive these negative impacts like increases in rent happening uh, to a significant enough extent where it impacts their quality of life and their living on a day-to-day basis. And interestingly, we actually found that you know, for the average resident, so we defined an average resident as somebody who's not renting on Airbnb themselves, but is aware of Airbnb happening in their neighborhoods and perhaps even in, in their buildings that they live in. Um, so we, that's how we define the average resident. We found that for most average residents, they actually saw the benefits of having Airbnb in their neighborhoods to outweigh the costs. Um, so for most part, they were either agnostic to Airbnb or actually perceived it favorably. And uh, what was interesting was if you are, are someone who's used Airbnb as a traveler yourself in the past, there was more positive sentiment towards the brand as opposed to if you hadn't used it. So, you know, Airbnb is in a sense, their they're, um, addressing residents is pretty simple. If you can get them to stay with your brand, uh, they won't mind having other Airbnb hosts in their vicinity as much either. Interesting. So, as Airbnb gets more popular, do you see it fundamentally still as part of the sharing economy, as a travel platform? What do you think that it is right now? Yeah. So, you know, right now, it's. Um, I think COVID has changed the dynamics a little bit. Uh, we did a research just before the COVID nineteen pandemic, and our research actually showed that the majority of units that were being listed on Airbnb, and this is particularly in the United States now, uh, about two-thirds of the units were actually rented by multi-unit hosts or what we call professional hosts. So these are people who are listing more than one property on Airbnb. Now, this is a pretty large number, uh, two-thirds, and it kind of went against Airbnb's brand narrative which is to saying, hey, we're giving you this local, authentic experience and an authentic connection with the host, when in most cases, the properties are actually being managed by professional property managers. And as a guest, you have very little to absolutely no interaction with a host 
or a local whatsoever. So it was interesting because it seemed like the professionalization of Airbnb was going against the brand narrative, but it did work for Airbnb really well because it allowed them to scale their supply quite exponentially through these professional property managers. We haven't had an opportunity to look through the data now, but at least what Airbnb contends is because of the COVID-19 pandemic, it seems like some of those professional hosts have reduced, maybe because they see better economic opportunity on the long-term rental market because travel demand is lower. Uh, But to the extent that that is true, we haven't had the opportunity to look at the supply data yet. That makes sense. Yeah, that is absolutely something that Airbnb has talked about recently. Another aspect of Airbnb as far as that sort of host experience has been the experiences aspect of it now where there's, you know, something like a, a a wine tasting or pasta making classes or things like that. Do you see that as something that will continue to be part of Airbnb? And is it something that you see the hotel industry kind of taking a look at as well? So, you know, it's interesting. I I think hotels have always had these kind of experiences, but um, typically they have been extensions um, in the form of their loyalty programs. So, you know, experiences outside the hotel have been ways that hotel companies have tried to get people to spend their loyalty points. It's almost like two distinct programs offering. One is the hotel offering and then is the experiences offering. I don't think it's been integrated as well as Airbnb has. I think what Airbnb really did was they realized that when a traveler actually goes to a destination, sure, they want a really nice accommodation at which they're going to stay. But really, the purpose of travel is to experience the destination as as a whole. And that's where their experiences product. And now because of COVID, their online experiences product really sort of took center stage. So I think the way Airbnb has integrated these experiences is better than what hotels have done. Even the hotels have had an experience product for way before Airbnb did. So you teach hospitality marketing. So obviously you study hotel brands, Airbnb. Are you seeing a merging between these two kinds of platforms? Are they each kind of learning from each other as travel evolves? Yeah, absolutely. I think, uh, you know, just as I think there's a lot for hotels to learn from Airbnb from an experience creation standpoint, Airbnb has a lot to learn from the hotels as well. So I, I think one of the common things, interestingly, that is emerging from both of these is both Airbnb and hotels have realized that they're in the business of space. So if you see yourself as being in the business of space and in the business of an experience, you start thinking about your business model and you start thinking about your product very differently. So Airbnb for the longest time was just a home sharing platform. But now if you go onto the platform, you can actually book independent and boutique hotel rooms across a variety of cities on Airbnb as well. Um, similarly, if you think about hotels, they, you know, all they've done for a long time is sell a hotel room or a hotel product. But now if you take a look at an example of Marriott with their homes and villas brand, that's actually a home sharing product that is being sold under the Marriott umbrella. So they're learning from each other, but they're also realizing that a traveler has a need and their job is to really cater to that need and not really get caught up on whether we're a hotel brand or a home sharing brand. Um, really, I think they're starting to rethink themselves as, as holistic travel brands. Last question for you. Is there an advantage that hotel brands might have over Airbnb at this point? Yes. Uh, some of our research has alluded to this as well. I think what hotels have and Airbnb 
has found very difficult to replicate and will probably continue to do so is that service and that hospitableness aspect. As much as Airbnb would like to suggest that they do provide these authentic local experiences, most of them aren't necessarily engineered and they they tend to happen um, through serendipity. But I think that's where hotels are different. Um, There is a purposeful service element built into the hotel experience. Uh, There's an element of hospitality that you're going to get through um, hotel staff that Airbnb is going to find difficult to replicate. Wonderful. Thank you so much for your time today. Thank you, Deidre. It was a pleasure. Thank you for having me. That's all for today, but coming up tomorrow, we're going to talk about inflation and share three stocks to put on your watch list for inflationary times. As always, people on the program may have interest in the stocks they talk about, and The Motley Fool may have formal recommendations for or against, so don't buy or sell stocks based solely on what you hear. I'm Chris Hill. Thanks for listening. We'll see you tomorrow.